0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled, Key Viral Hepatitis Studies Influencing My Practice Following AASLD 2021. During this podcast, Dr. Nancy Rowe, Professor of Medicine and Chief, Section of Hepatology, and Associate Director, Solid Organ Transplantation, and Richard B. Capps, Chair of Hepatology, at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, discusses new viral hepatitis data, including studies related to hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and hepatitis Delta, presented at AASLD 2021. For more information about Dr. Rowe and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Rowe has to say about new viral hepatitis data from AASLD 2021.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, everyone, for joining for this AASLD update. I think we were all hoping to have been in person, and it was virtual. That's a good opportunity. If this program stimulates any interest, you can still register, or if you are already registered, you can view the presentations. They will be available until February. So just as a brief overview, I'm going to go through um, some a little bit of data on hepatitis B. We're going to talk about Hep C, especially the Canadian Youth Care Cascade, and then we're going to cover um, hepatitis delta. As um, you know, D is definitely the less common of our viral hepatitis that we deal with. But um, because there's a lot of really exciting new development in this area, and it is a more virulent virus combination, um, we're excited to see some options. All right. So the first data that we're going to look at is the use of TAF in prevention of hepatitis B vertical transmission or mother-to-childhood transmission. So as you're probably aware, TDF is the current recommended agent to help those highly viremic mothers in the end of their pregnancy to bring the viral load down and to prevent mother-to-childhood transmission transmission. And is not advocated for, and TAF was really not advocated for because of lack of data. So, this is one of the real world studies that's trying to accumulate the data that will hopefully lead to the assurance that this is also a safe option. Um, the eligibility were maternal age greater than 20. It was anyone who presented at any pregnancy stage was eligible to participate. They could have either newly diagnosed active hepatitis B or they could have been previously diagnosed. And they could have also been already on TDF, and there was an opportunity to switch from TAF to TDF or another regimen. And if you were not on TDF as a pregnant mother, uh, we usually try to switch you anyway, as those other agents are not recommended as first-line treatment in pregnancy. Primary endpoints were maternal safety, infant safety, and then they also did some indices on head size and, and baby size at birth and seven months, just to make sure that there was no other foreseen abnormality in the child. Secondary endpoints included the maternal rate of undetectable hepatitis B, and then infant really serology and markers at seven months to really ensure that there was no maternal childhood transmission. So looking at maternal safety, you can see that there were about 200 individuals equally weighted between the TDF and the TAP arms, The pregnancy-associated nausea, anorexia, fatigue, and vomiting are well-matched between the two arms. We don't really think that those are antiviral um, symptoms. Complications were also pretty equal among the two arms. We think that hep B is a very well-tolerated condition during pregnancy, and so these complications are really on par for what you would expect to see in a general population. In some studies, demonstrated a little bit more gestational hypertension and gestational diabetes in women with hepatitis B. This is not borne out in this study. So when we're looking at infant safety, here again, you can see that the amount of drug exposure, APGOR scores, congenital defects, as well as any other abnormal condition was well-matched between the two groups. So there seemed to be no difference in any of these outcomes for tenofovir in the form of TAF compared to tenofovir in the form of TDF. Here we are looking at birth weight, head circumference, weight broken down by both boys and girls. And you can see that between the two groups, TAP versus TDF, there were really no differences either at birth or at seven months, suggesting that, that um, there was no impact on growth. Now, why would we even question this? There are, are data showing that TDF might have some you know detriment in, in um osteo or bone strength osteopenia as well as renal insufficiency or renal function, although both a very short exposure, that should be pretty small, but this um, confirms there did not seem to be any growth abnormalities or differences between the TAP and the TDF group. So efficacy from a vertical transmission or mother to childhood transmission, there were no transmissions in either the TAP or the TDF group. This is really supporting the fact that TDF is first line therapy for this highly viremic, or ten to the um, ten times greater than ten to the greater than six um, viral load, at that point it is recommended to initiate antiviral therapy in the third trimester so that you can lower the amount of virus that, which decreases the chance that there's going to be escape from active passive immunization. Should also be pointed out that all the infants in the study did receive active and passive immunization. That would be standard of care. That's vaccination within twelve hours of birth and um, as well as HBIG to prevent transmission. And there were no differences in maternal DNA level um, reduction or ALT normalization or e-antigen seroconversion. Uh, We recognize that women do tend to seroconvert sometimes during pregnancy. And you can see that here with a 21 and 22% um, e-antigen seroconversion in this group in the treatment-naive individuals and actually about a third even in the switchover or continuation group. So the key take-home point, there were no perinatal transmissions in either the TAF or the TDF group at seven months, which confirms the fact that TDF is our standard of care and suggests that TAF is at least going to have the same degree of antiviral suppression and efficacy as TDF. Infants did receive standard passive active immunization, which is really important. This is not going to be a replacement for that. The TAF and the TDF groups did have similar efficacy and safety outcomes between baseline as well as postpartum month 18. And this really suggests that TAF might begin to play a role in the algorithm to prevent transmission from mother to child in those with active hepatitis B. But until then, our guidelines still do recommend tenofovir in the form of TDF. The next study that we're going to go through is Retract B. This is a second presentation. There was a presentation at the Easel meeting that that looked at some of this data, so this is a build to this large cohort. This um, retract piece is looking at nucleotide analog cessation in patients with chronic hepatitis B. This is a large retrospective cohort of 945 patients. This did look at the period of a year, so these individuals that were stopped on therapy were monitored for a year, and then most of this study looks at what happened to them after that first year of cessation. It's also really important to recognize that the, there were not defined stopping rules, nor were there defined initiation or retreatment rules, so that the individuals that stopped and started therapy um, was really at the discretion of the physician caring for them and not because of defined treatment endpoints. You can see the characteristics of the nearly 1,000 patients. They were predominantly Asian, but 9% were white. Um, hepatitis genotype B, um, further hepatitis B, was the predominant genotype at 52%. The vast majority of the individuals were discontinued from either entecavir or tenofovir, but there were 9% that had received other therapies. The mean amount of duration was about three years, um, which would be standard if you're considering discontinuing treatment and a group that has not met some of those other more well-defined metrics. 84% were E antigen negative at the start. That doesn't mean that they were E antigen negative at the time that, and they should have been E antigen negative at the time of treatment discontinuation. But some of the individuals were E antigen positive at treatment initiation. There were 11% that were serotic, and the mean degree of surface antigen was 2.6 logs. And you can see that the rest of that, that, many of them had abnormal liver enzymes, and there were about nine visits per cohort. So, when we look at outcomes, so the graphic on the left looks at what happened in that year, kind of that transition year when patients stopped therapy. There was a huge amount of virologic relapse as well as biochemical relapse. Virologic relapse is when the virus went up greater than 2,000 international units per milliliter. A biochemical relapse would would be when the ALT went up 1.5 times the upper limit of normal. And then a clinical relapse is when both the hepatitis B DNA is elevated as well as the ALT. And so 57% had virologic relapse. Clinical relapse only occurred in 24%, that's expected, right? The virus starts replicating, then there's the opportunity to have an ALT increase, and so if treatment is reinitiated or if they never had that ALT elevation, then there's going to be a lot less clinical relapse. It is important, though, that at least one or more relapse episode occurred in 66% of the patients, and so a fair number of them in that first year did have some form of relapse. When you look at the graphic here on the right-hand side, this shows that those that had sustained remission, so remember after that year and beyond, so that the graphic starts at at one year post-discontinuation and goes for up to four years after that, about 10% had a loss of surface antigen in the long term, and 20% had sustained virologic control, so 30% altogether had either sustained remission or surface antigen loss. So that would imply that 70% of this population did not have that. When we look at the factors that were associated with that sustained remission of surface antigen loss or virologic remission at four years, ethnicity was impactful. So the white patients did much better than the Asian patients. And if you concentrate on this middle line, which includes both sustained remission as well as surface antigen loss, which is probably the more important you can see it was 48% versus 28% in the Asian population. If your E antigen was positive at the initiation of therapy, this also gave the opportunity for a little more control, 36 versus 28%. Although in those that started treatment at E antigen negative, 28% to have sustained remission is still pretty important. Um, it suggests that not everyone, but a sizable minority still were able to come off therapy and have a sustained remission. Surface antigen um, levels at the time of cessation, uh, and commonly associated, and you can see this is also true here, 58% versus 24%, and those that had low levels of surface antigen, and then if you had a relapse in that first year, that was impactful. If there was no relapse, about 50% of them had sustained remission. Again, nowhere close to 100%, but 50%. Whereas in the 66% that had at least one episode of, of relapse in that first year, only 19% were able to have any kind of sustained remission. And then we're going to go through a little bit more of the um, granular data in a graphic form. And remember here, the differences between the virologic relapse, the 65% versus 44% is are those that had 2,000 versus 20,000, so the how much um, viral replication was occurring. And you can see, if you look at that lower amount, that 2,065% after four years had a virologic relapse. Biochemical relapse was much um, less. And if you look at something that we would consider more impactful, the red line here at greater than two times the upper limit of normal, that occurred in 43%, most of which you would expect should also be replicating. And then clinical relapse, which is both, was occurred in 41%, confirming that It's that biochemical relapse that really starts to drive the definition of clinical relapse. And then 35% of individuals by year four were retreated. So that probably justifies the difference in clinical um, relapse and virologic relapse. And some of the individuals are going to be restarted on treatment before they had the opportunity to increase their ALT. So take home points. Sustained permission and hep surface antigen loss were uncommon after stopping um, therapy, even in well-suppressed patients, with 66% experiencing virologic relapse by year four and 66% having that early relapse episode in that first year. No relapse within the first year of therapy, discontinuation, white race, and E antigen positive at the treatment start, as well as low hep B surface antigen titers were associated with sustained response. And unfortunately, most of the individuals involved in the study did have E antigen negativity at the time of treatment initiation. So not to say that we should not learn our old therapies and how to use them best. Um, So like the retract B study is trying to stop treatment in a subset of individuals that might be able to have a durable response off therapy. But this is a precursor of the incredible development in hepatitis B. You can see that there are multiple compounds here that were presented in abstract form, and many of these are in exciting new areas of hep B control. We hope that some of them might actually even translate over to delta management. And we suspect that you're going to have to combine these a little bit how we do hepatitis C therapy in order to have the ideal opportunity. But you can see that we have core inhibitors, that siRNA capsid assembly modulator, uh, which is separate than other capsid assembly modulators. We have new um, nucleic acid polymers. We have a therapeutic vaccine. And then there are single trigger RNA interference agents, which are are really looking at strong um, impact on suppression of viral replication. So stay tuned, hopefully, as we um, go through the next Easel and ASLD conferences, um, we will get even more exciting imp- um, data that suggests that some of these agents might be headed towards uh, regulatory approval, um, offering our patients um, functional or actual sterilizing opportunities for cure. All right, we're going to now move to hepatitis C. This is an interesting study looking at either children or youth. This was out of British Columbia and Canada, and they uh, looked at nearly 1,800 antibody-positive young people. Now, this is important because we know that hepatitis C is now bimodal. We do not diminish the effect in the birth cohort or those, at least in the U.S., that were born between 1945 and 1965, but because of the opioid epidemic, which impacts both women of childbearing age, which will go forward in maternal to childhood transmission, as well as young people that are um, injecting drugs or using um, drugs, that this is going to also increase uh, hepatitis C incidence and prevalence in a much younger population. It's a nice time to put a plug in that we do have antiviral therapy that's approved all the way down to the age of three, so that if you have a child that you want to treat, there are really excellent treatment options starting at three years of age. This, however, is looking at an entire cohort of individuals younger than 30, so 29 and below, and what happens to them as they're screened and um, attempt to navigate hepatitis C, the care cascade. So One of the very first things you can see here is of this 1,800 individuals that those that received RNA testing um, were pretty small so it went down from 1,800 to 1,110, and that's a lost opportunity. We now know that you can order an antibody that automatically reflexes to PCR so that it's a one stick for both the screening and the diagnostic test. So of those that did have RNA, 673 or 61% of the entire cohort was found to be RNA positive. And then of these, 80% were genotyped. This is important because if you're doing a genotype, even though it might be irrelevant for your treatment decision, it suggests that you're teeing someone up to be considered for treatment. The other surrogate that we sometimes will use is fibrosis testing, but in a group of individuals this young, they may not be thinking about advanced fibrosis, and so a genotype is really the test that suggests they're going to work with the payer to get approval for therapy. But of those that were genotyped, only forty percent initiated treatment, and then eighty-eight percent experienced SVR. It doesn't really didn't say too much about where those patients went, if that was lost follow-up or if they, um, you know, were non-adherent to treatment, as that that's a much lower amount than what we would expect with some of our agents now. But it does show that there is a significant drop-off from anaposy positivity to those that were able to achieve cure. So key take-home points findings um, really revealed that there was a significant gap in hepatitis C therapy initiation, even though there were obviously other gaps along the care cascade. So it really emphasizes that there are likely barriers that make linkage to care of this population challenging, and that these have to be identified and addressed. And there were several, although not featured here, there were several um, abstracts presented at AASLD that address some of the creative ways to engage individuals that are still in high-risk um, psychosocial situations into therapy. So this Sarah block actually presented a really nice reset. This is pre-pandemic data so that the hepatitis C global status was recalculated um, to see what the impact of treatment was so that they used mathematic modeling that was based on real data. Often it developed with the assistance of the actual country and the governing body. And those where they couldn't do that, they used other ways of trying to make their model. And they showed that in 2020, the prevalence for hepatitis C remained highest in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Greater than 50% of the world's infections were in China, Pakistan, India, Russia, and the United States. However, greater than 10 million people did initiate direct-acting antiviral therapy between 2015 and the end of 2020, and more than a third of the individuals that initiated treatment were really in Egypt. So Egypt really showed as a superstar, as a place where there was a vast government and country-wide investment in identifying and linking patients to curative therapy that was just a, a great success story. So in 2020, less than 25% of iremic infections were diagnosed, and less than 10% initiated treatment worldwide, suggesting that even pre-pandemic, we had a lot of work to do. But the key take-home points for this is the provo... Global prevalence has declined since 2020, but 57 million individuals are still estimated to be biremic, so we still have a lot of work to do. Lack of screening and then subsequent diagnosis is still one of the largest barriers, although we could see from the Canadian study before that, that even initiation of treatment in those that are identified as having Hep C is lackluster. And so we have a, we have a lot of things along the care cascade to address in order to lead to worldwide elimination. All right, the last topic that we're going to move towards is hepatitis D, delta. And this is something that we don't usually talk about because we're really seeing a lot of new opportunity for treatment of this group. There were several studies and we're going to walk through a couple of those. So this is beyond CATU, which looked at Belevertide plus pegolita interferon alpha for chronic delta, and this is plus minus. So you can see that there were two arms here: um, either balevertide two milligrams sub Q once a day for um, a year, or balevertide sub Q with Pegolita interferon alpha 2A for um 12 months. This was a compassionate use study. So this was um every patient in this study had either well-compensated cirrhosis, because remember, you can't use interferon in a, in a poorly compensated individual, or they had F3 fibrosis, or they had less degrees of fibrosis, but persistently elevated ALT for the six months prior to initiation. And this did involve 145 patients. Endpoints were virologic efficacy, which was defined as a hepatitis D RNA that was either undetectable or had decreased by at least two logs from baseline. And then biochemical efficacy, which was normalization of ALT, defined here as less than 40 international units per liter. This is the data looking at the time course across the year so that the patients were monitored pretty frequently in the first three months, and then those visits were spread out. And you can see that, that either in beloved monotherapy, which is the middle line, or in combination therapy, which is the far right line, that you started to see antiviral efficacy, because here we're looking at that, that decrease by two logs at least, or undetectable um, hepatitis delta RNA. And you could start to see that really um, um, kick in um, as soon as one month in the combination therapy and closer to three months in the monotherapy. And by the end of the year, combination Belevertide and Pigletta interferon alpha 2a. Managed to hit the virologic endpoint in 93.9%. So only two individuals that were followed to this time point had not achieved that, and that's um, compared to 68% in the monotherapy arm, which is still not anything to be uh, frowned upon. That's still great efficacy. When we look at ALT normalization, though, there was a, a discrepancy. So it was much more frequent to improve your ALT on belarbetide monotherapy than pegylated interferon in combination. And um, this was felt to probably be related to the PEG therapy itself, because it did not correlate to those that had suppressed their delta RNA. When we consider adverse events, so you can imagine that an interferon-based therapy is going to have a lot more adverse events. And you can see that any adverse event was 43% in the combination, opposed to 29% in the monotherapy. But grade three to four adverse events were equally matched, um, seven patients and six patients along the two arm. And discontinuations due to adverse events were actually very rare, two patients, one and three in the other. Um, there were a handful of liver-related adverse events, uh, slightly more in the um arm, and, but this was not felt to be statistically significant. And there were very few injection site reactions, so the therapy was actually very well tolerated. Now, bilevertide is associated with um, an asymptomatic increase in bile acids. And you can see this occurred in about most of the patients, 76 out of the 77 in monotherapy and 68 out of 68 in the combination. So nearly all patients had that increase in bile acids, which we've actually known about, and there was no deaths. All right. So key take-home points on this study, belevertide plus or minus interferon alpha-2a was safe and effective in achieving hepatitis delta viral suppression. Virologic suppression was more common in the combination um, therapy group, but ALT normalization was a slightly less common when you added pegylated interferon. All right, so we're now going to look at a different study. This is a study that looked at either high or low-dose bilevertide in patients, and it's important here to look at the study schema. There was a group of individuals who had a placebo lead-in, and then were given balevertide 10 milligrams sub-Q daily for the last half of the study compared to either 2-milligram monotherapy for the entire 144 weeks or 10-milligram monotherapy for the entire 144 weeks. This was also a really nice analysis, and not only did they look at the primary endpoint, which is combined undetectable delta RNA or a decrease by at least two logs from baseline as well as normalization of ALT at week 48, but they also obtained core liver biopsies in a subgroup of of patients from baseline as well as week 48, and they use that to detect antiviral efficacy. So when we're looking at the no treatment, two milligrams or 10 milligram arms, you can see very easily that no treatment underperformed compared to the other two. 10 milligram compared to two milligrams was not dose responsive, which means that the two milligrams actually performed essentially the same as the 10 milligram. And you can see that of these individuals that the median change of hepatitis D antigen from week zero to 48 was about the same between the two arms. The number of patients that had undetectable hep D antigen was about the same between the two arms. There was a slight increase in the 10 milligram arm for those that achieved undetectable delta RNA. But when you looked at uh, the mean change uh, by log, it is about the same between the two arms. It's also very nice to know that the intrahepatic hepatitis D viral RNA levels correlated strongly with the number of hepatitis D antigen-positive cells and the hepatitis D RNA. So what they saw in the tissue um, looked like it was very nicely correlated with the surrogates that we can get from a from syrup. So sometimes we find that, that the blood looks good, but the actual tissue isn't is, you know, only demonstrating that the blood levels are half the story. That was not true here. So the study also looked at some other inflammatory markers. So you can see that they looked at levels of, of CXCL10, which is an inflammatory cytokine. Cytokine. They also looked at other interferon-stimulating genes, and that they demonstrated that blivertide reduced expression of these interferon-stimulating genes as well as the um, level of the inflammatory chemokines and cytokines suggesting that if you can control or if you can decrease the delta RNA, that that's going to lead to less inflammation and, and hopefully less fibrosis and progression in those individuals with hepatitis B and D delta co-infection. So The take-home points here, intrahepatic hepatitis D virus RNA levels were significantly decreased at week 48 with time treatment versus none. Um, that was true with both 10 as well as the two milligrams. More than 33% of the blevertide-treated patients achieved undetectable RNA, which is very exciting. And do know, though, from our other study that if they had combined it with paleo-interferon, it probably would have been a little more robust. Um, The number of delta-antigen-positive hepatocytes significantly declined by week 48 with blevertide treatment versus none, suggesting that the um, surrogates in the serum reflect what's going on in the tissue. And about 50% of liver-treated patients achieved undetectable delta antigen levels, which is also really exciting. This did translate to reduction in liver inflammation related to a reduction in delta infection. All right. Now, the last two studies I'm going to go through pretty quickly because I know we want to have a little time for questions. And this is really looking at a number of database claims or large data cohorts to, to give us a characteristic understanding of what delta looks like in the U.S. And so the first study was from Dr. Gish. And some of the important things here, and this is using a US claims database analysis, is that this population is young. They looked at anyone that had a hepatitis B or D, ICD 9 or 10 code, and then they looked for those that had Delta on top of hepatitis B. And those that had Delta infection really concentrated in this young demographic. And this is important because as this, this group of individuals is at higher risk for a more um, severe outcome and liver cancer, this is going to be more impactful as it's a young population working, and so it's really important to know that this is why we need to screen for this. There's also significant geographic um, variability, and maybe Delta spot, um, has a soft spot in myself because Illinois has some of the highest Delta rates across the United States, and so that you can see that there are, is significant regional variation, which means that we can target screening by region concentrated in those places where we expect to see the most delta. Across the U.S., though, there was still a prevalence of 11.2% among those that were hepatitis B infected, really emphasizing that we we should be screening for co-infection because there are a lot of individuals out there with co-infection. Now, this was a different study, also from a U.S. claims database, looking at disease severity as well as a type of insurance. And you can see here, again, emphasizing that that There is a young um, population with Delta infection compared to mono infection, and this was significant. The hep- B infected were a little bit older. The insurance type here, also the majority are going to be commercial, but there were um, differences. That there was a little more Medicaid in the hepatitis D co-infected group. When we look at comorbid conditions or um, you know, liver-related morbidity and mortality, there is a significant increase in Delta infection. This includes things that are common medical conditions like hypertension, but also other comorbid conditions like smoking, substance abuse, alcohol abuse. And remember, the risk for Delta, some of it is going to be just geographic. There are places like Romania, Russia, Mongolia, where there's going to be a lot more Delta, which might be from maternal to childhood transmission. But we also see Delta in injection drug use. And so this is emphasizing that the population does sometimes have some psychosocial barriers did see a fair amount of hepatitis C co-infection with both groups, although it was statistically significant um, to be higher, and a lot more HIV co-infection. Decompensated cirrhosis was also a little bit more um, common, although cir- cirrhosis itself was about the same between the two cohorts, and there was also an increased signal in both liver transplantation as well as liver cancer, as you would expect if there are a young group of individuals with decompensated cirrhosis and cancer concentrating in them. So the take-home points here are really that patients with Delta have a significantly higher risk of liver disease, increased rates from comorbid conditions as well as liver-related morbidity, and probably mortality than those that have had b mono infection, and that the characterization of the population really highlights that we should be screening for this and, and linking them to care. With this young demographic, we want to make sure that we mitigate disease progression, and the studies that we presented before really show that we are going to have some agents to help us accomplish that. All right. So I know that I didn't give you a lot of time for q and I'm happy to stay for a little bit over if you are. And Sarah, I think you're going to give me some questions. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. And thank you, Dr. Rowe, for that excellent presentation and, and being giving of your time to stay for a few minutes over because we've had a number of questions come in through the chat box and we'll get to as many as we can in the next few minutes. Uh, so the first question links back to the uh, pregnancy study in those uh, mothers with hepatitis B, and David wants to know if you think there will be similar trials with the use of entecavir in this population.
1: So thank you, David. That's a great question. Um, the answer is no, because there were there was some data, mostly from animal models, that suggested that entecavir might have some impact on or um, on development, fetal development. And because of that, intecovir is recommended not to be used during pregnancy. Also, because Ntacavir is not part of our HIV therapy, there won't be that HIV cohort that adds um, credible data on to safety. So I think that tenofovir in either the form of TDF or TAF are going to remain the most common. We can still use Telbibidine or Viriat so that, that there are other agents if you really can't find get access to tenofovir.
2: Great. Thank you for for reinforcing uh, what we do in our our pregnant patients for treatment. So with relation to that same study and the pregnancy TDF and TAF study, Susan asks the question, was weight gain in the women or the infant weight at birth compared, thinking that in our HIV population, TAF is associated with more weight gain than TDF? You know, I don't.
1: They did not report on that, that I remember. And since it's such a small period of exposure, usually just in the last trimester, they that might not have been enough time to see weight gain. Also, you know, I think it's hard when you're looking at that small number of patients to understand what is pregnancy appropriate weight gain, and if that would be enough patients to even show a true difference in weight gain. But I did not see that reported in the study.
2: Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, We have a question from Mubin who asked, um, and this was at the very beginning of the presentation uh, about hepatitis B, and wondering if treatment strategies for hepatitis B uh, in patients with low viral loads, so those less than 2,000, and mild elevations in ALT is ready for prime time as a standard of care.
1: Yeah, so I think that's also an excellent question. As we move towards uh, the opportunity for functional cure, we start to redefine who's a good candidate for um, hepatitis B therapy. And here we start to recognize age. So if you have someone who's got a very low viral load and they're young, you know you might look for other reasons for the abnormal ALT as opposed to blaming the hepatitis B um, right off the bat. But as you start to get to be 35 or 45 in that window, both the ASLD as well as the European guidelines Suggest that you might want to actually think of treatment both for what we would have defined as an immune tolerant group as well as something one that has bioreplication with abnormal liver enzymes because we do know that that one blood test may not actually represent what's happening to the patient if we would manage to draw their blood every single day and so it's really going to be um, that it, it's gray the recommendation allowing the practitioner to be more aggressive if they would want to but also not mandating therapy for someone who may not be ready um, to initiate treatment.
2: Great. Thank you for answering that question as well. I thought we had a great comment from Michael who said, at the present time, don't stop nuke therapy. I think this was related back to the retract B study. And I wondered if you wanted to comment on that and maybe share your thoughts on, on treatment cessation in this population.
1: So there's certainly a group of individuals that stops treatment against the advice of their physician. I think that one of the most important messages, if you have someone who's had durable long-term suppression and you think that you want to stop, you have to recognize that you need to have intensive monitoring, um, not even just in the first year, right? So probably beyond the first year, because there is a significant risk for clinically relevant relapse. And I think that we would never recommend discontinuing treatment in someone who's got cirrhosis, even though that group, of uh, that demographic, was included in this study. Um, certainly, those that meet the more traditional endpoint, so e antigen seroconversion, gives you a little bit more reassurance that you're going to have a, a better opportunity for st- for sustained remission. But sometimes there are just patients that want to stop or want to have an attempt to discontinue their treatment, and as long as you have a good plan for when. When and how you're going to monitor them and when and how you're going to reinitiate treatment if necessary, that's the most important thing. But yes, it's not, it's not for the faint of heart.
2: <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for sharing your, your thoughts on that and the data on that. So I think we'll end with our last question uh, related to hepatitis delta. And so Robert asked, and this was related to the CATU study, that if you split out the patients with undetectable versus suppression of viral load, what was the response rate to belevertide
1: there? So that is a great study. I mean, a great question. And I unfortunately looked at way too many belevertide data points to know that right off the bat. I think that there's a group that does suppress virus completely. It is much more common in the ribo- in the pig plus belevertide arms. In the blevertide monotherapy, there is a a smaller chance that you're going to fully suppress um, virus. And they did look at that composite of both lowering by at least two logs or loss, completely undetectable um, RNA. And the differences were also a little bit different across the, the many studies. So some had a little more robust antiviral treatment and some a little bit less. That might have been related to some of the demographics of the patients themselves. But it, most patients will hit that two-log decline. Most patients will not become completely undetectable. But many of these studies, they haven't captured all the patients. So some of it is just that they have 50 of the 100 patients actually at that endpoint. And I don't think that there's a discontinuation attempt. So many of these individuals will hit that end. And then you know, if appropriate, and that's a good decision with both patient and provider, we'll continue going. Bilebertide is really being considered a long-term
0: treatment option. Thank you very much to Dr. Rowe and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full AASLD 2021 conference coverage program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.